Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. He will be our first male. There you go. <laughs> In our trip to the Agora, we going to talk about a man. That's right, listeners. If you're a man, you, you can, can submit. send your wins. Yeah. yeah. We, can, we can honor the men sometimes. Only the men that are doing their part and listening to our show. Supporting our show. That too. Because I don't know if, uh, what's his name, is... Listen. <laughs> Listening. He's going to listen to this episode. He better. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back to another episode of She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. On this week's episode, we will talk about Mary Elizabeth Jane Coulter, an educator and architect that defined the style and aesthetic of the Southwest region of the United States. I'm Jessica Rogers, getting ready for my trip to Miami, but currently based out of Washington, D.C. with my co-hosts, Lizzie and Ajiti. Hello, I'm Lizzie Rar, getting excited to go to L.A. next weekend out of San Francisco. And I'm Nurjiti Rivas, dreaming about my future trip to Michigan. Woo! Yeah. From Houston, Texas. So now for our disclaimer, the three of us are not historians, nor are we experts on this subject. We are just sharing stories about the information that we find about each woman. If we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us, leave us a comment, and we will all continue learning together. All right, check it. We're in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and on April 4th, 1869, the daughter of Irish immigrants, Mary Elizabeth Jane, was born. Oh, an Irish Elizabeth, like our very own Lizzie. Hey, hey. <laughs> yes. So her family moved around a lot. Her father, William, was a merchant and her mother, Rebecca, was a milliner. A milliner? A milliner is a hat maker. Yes, a hat maker. Oh, yeah. We talked about this on episode 15 because Eileen Gray designed a millinery shop. Yep, right. So, Mary Elizabeth, 
Her parents and her sister one day moved from Pennsylvania to Texas. Yeah, Texas, represent. <laughs> Yeehaw. And then to Colorado. And eventually, oh. at the age of 11, they settled in St. Paul, Minnesota. Twin Cities. Wow, they were moving all over. Yeah. Well, speaking of, in the 1880s, St. Paul was still a pretty young city. The city was growing economically, infrastructurally, and culturally. Do you guys remember the Dakota War from American History class? Nope. I can say, without the shadow of a doubt, that I've never heard of this. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you might have also remembered it as the Sioux Uprising or the Dakota Uprising, or the Dakota Conflict, or Little Crow's War. Jessica, like, keep saying names. I've never heard about any of this. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of ringing a bell, but only in name. Zero details I could tell back to you. (laughs) All right, all right, okay. So this story, it's so tragic. But it is U.S. history, so here we go. So the U.S. government had broken its promises to the millions of Native Americans that inhabited the land known as the Dakota Indians. When the government broke their promise, it incited a six-week war against white settlers. The war ended in 1862 when 38 Dakota Indians were hanged in Mankato, which is known as the largest one-day mass execution in U.S. history. Oh my God. What was the broken promise? Yeah, that's terrible. Well, in order to make Minnesota a state, the U.S. government had promised to pay the Dakota tribes money and supplies if they ceded large tracts of land, known as the Treaty of Traverse de Sioux and Treaty of Mendota. They went back on that promise and murder ensued. Uh, Of course, very typical. Big eye roll over here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, an uncle of Mary Elizabeth's family had come across some sketches from some prisoners of Sioux. My assumption is that they were Native American and that these prisoners had some experience working in architecture because these sketches were architectural in nature. And through her uncle and these sketches, Mary Elizabeth was introduced to the Native American culture, bright colors and all, something that will come again in her life. Oh, how tragic, but interesting. Can we make up some stuff here? You think maybe the uncle stole them? I have this whole movie playing in my head with Uncle Mary Elizabeth as the bad guy. Oh, this got dramatic. (laughs) And I'm very interested to see how this influenced her. Yeah, I couldn't find that information out in Judy. But what we do know about the city at the time, however, was that the arts and crafts movement was happening. A movement that Mary Elizabeth would come to embrace later in life. Ah, Lizzie, talk to us about the arts and crafts movement and your iconic poster that became so important in my years as your roommate. <laughs> Which poster <laughs> is that? Chanois! Oh, <laughs> yes. I do remember. That was, yeah, that was a, a staple in our houses, wasn't it? Yeah. Yep. Yes. Well, I actually think that poster is Art Nouveau, but... The arts and crafts movement influenced the Art Nouveau style. Arts and crafts was the start of more modern styles in art design and decoration and promoted traditional craftsmanship. It was Mm anti-industrial. Oh, yeah. I confuse my art movements. 
Thanks, Lizzie, for the clarification. You got it. (laughs) So other influences in Mary Elizabeth's life included her interest in art. She actually wanted to pursue a career in the arts, but her family was against it. Well, primarily her father. Fathers and their disapprovals. What you gonna do? (laughs) Yeah. And it must have been just the dad that was opposed to this, because in 1886, when Mary's father died, the rest of the family moved to Oakland, California, so that Mary Elizabeth could attend the newly founded California School of Design. Talk about support. Yeah. Too bad so sad about the dead. Yeah, but wow, (laughs) that's super cool. Her family was so supportive. And the California School of Design was started by the SF Art Association in 1874. And today it is the San Francisco Art Institute, which is a great school. Actually, shout out to Joel, who designed our logo. He went to the Art Institute. Oh, hey. Okay, so yes. And Mary Elizabeth's coursework included drawing and painting. And it even had an apprenticeship. At local architecture firms, which you could imagine was very rare for women at the time. I think that means she had good connections and even better talent and grit. Yeah, that's awesome that she got to do those internships and make connections. Yeah. Also happening during that time, San Francisco was also trying to define their Western aesthetic as a city. Mary Elizabeth was very much interested in these conversations on architecture and design similarly to what she had witnessed in Minnesota. I think this also speaks about how influential culture is on architecture and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Her interest shows she was going to be a great architect, right, Jessica? Oh, yes. Her influence you'll see, you still see today. But we're jumping ahead. Okay, okay, sorry, carry on. Okay, after graduating from school in 1891, Mary and family moved Back to St. Paul, where Mary accepted a teaching position at Stout Manual Training School in the nearby town of Menominee, Wisconsin. Oh, I wonder why they returned. And I wonder how difficult or not it would be for a woman to get a job as a teacher in a technical field. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. a good point. And it's interesting to me that they just moved to California for her school, but they didn't want to stay. Yeah. Uh, it's not uh, shared, but my assumption is that uh, Minnesota, it's a very conservative town and California is not. So I think I might have come across something that her family might have been more conservative. So that's why they wanted to go back to, you know, more traditional ideals than more their style. Their pace. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, anyway, in 1895, Mary was teaching drawing in St. Paul at a very progressive school called Mechanic Arts High School. Oh, nice. I'm glad she was able to teach in an artistic technical field. Mm -hmm. Yes. So this all-boys school had an innovative educational program where they permitted students to take traditional academic courses and technical art classes. The school was so awesome that students would win design awards at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, and then later at the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair, all to the credit of Mary's Stella teachings. Wow, that's so cool. That's super impressive. Yes. Okay, so Mary Elizabeth is an awesome professor, right? Right. Clearly. Yes. 
Not only was she supportive to her students, she was also really engaged in the community outside of work. She would lecture at the University of Minnesota Extension School. She was a book reviewer and editor for the St. Paul Daily Globe. And she took classes in archaeology, history, and metal crafts. Love all this overachieving. Keep it up, Mary Elizabeth Jane. Killing it in all (laughs) areas. Yes. So some of Mary's lectures often incorporated references to Native American arts and crafts. Some of her lectures were titled The Utilitarian Basis of Aesthetic or another one that's called The Red Craftsman. So besides at the university, Mary would also lecture at a place called the New Centuries Club. It was a women's group where Mary was also a member of. The Red Craftsman? Sounds pretty problematic today, but I have to look at it with the lens of that time and understand that it was just how it was and how people spoke. I think it's pretty great that she was acknowledging and highlighting the work of Native Americans. Agreed. The title didn't age well, but I appreciate (laughs) that she wanted to discuss and teach on those topics. Also, tell us more about the New Century Club. It sounds like a cool group. Yes, it was just a women's club. But yeah, those titles, Nordry, were a little bit questionable. But we're just going to rock with it for now. Mm. What is important to note is that during her time at the Century Club, perhaps it was probably at one of her lectures where she met Minnie Harvey Huckle, Fred Harvey's daughter. Fred Harvey was the owner of Fred Harvey Company that provided food and lodging for rail passengers. He would commission high-end restaurants and hotels known as Harvey Houses. Okay, so she was shaking and baking with high society folks, it sounds like. Yes. So Minnie, after hearing Mary speak on Native American culture and design, well, rumor has it that it was Minnie that convinced her father and brother to hire Mary to design the interiors for the latest Harvey house called the Hotel Alvarado Indian Building in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Rumor has it. (laughs) (laughs) Having the in with Fred Harvey really helped Mary's career. From 1902 to 1948, Mary was the primary architect and designer for the Fred Harvey Company. During this time, she had completed 21 hotels, novelty slash souvenir shops, and rest areas all along the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway. Oh, snap! That is pretty amazing to have the same client for 40 years. Means they were pretty happy. Yeah, no kidding. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, you can imagine with terms like hotel and souvenir shop and perhaps railway, that although they were commercial projects, these buildings would be very touristy places and attractions. And leaning into that, like, kitschiness... And with Mary's awareness of Native American history and culture, her designs would become icons of this design pedagogy and solidify what we know today as the American Southwest aesthetic. Wow. So she helped create a whole aesthetic. That is so cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with this aesthetic, you can see it in some of Mary's designs. Some of the prominent features include accent red sandstone walls, log beams, also known as vigas, 
tiny windows, intimate courtyards, and rough boulder structures. Think a lot of natural earth elements and structures that seem to have come from rock formations. Yes, the style is really beautiful. My parents actually moved to New Mexico in the last year, and their house is in this traditional adobe style. They have vigas on all of their ceilings and a kiva, which is a small wood-burning corner fireplace that's typical of that style as well. Yes. Okay, so get this. As architect for the Fred Harvey Company, Mary would be commissioned to build six buildings on the south rim of the Grand Canyon National Park. Have you guys ever been to the Grand Canyon? (laughs) The Grand Canyon. A hole. A very, very, very big hole. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Indeed. I mean, it is. (laughs) But yes, I have been twice and probably was in some of these buildings that she designed, which is so cool. Yes. I'm not sure if I went to the South Rim. I think I might have visited the west rim on a family road trip from vegas it wasn't really an arc venture if you know what i'm saying we wanted to see the green canyon but i guess we will just have to go again and we'll have to add it to our arc ventures list yes please but wait a minute jessica so her buildings are still there (laughs) oh yes i was so excited that i forgot to mention it but okay so some of the places along the grand canyon that you might have come across are places like hermit's rest the Lookout Studio, Bright Angel Lodge, Hopi House, and the Watchtower. Also included is the Phantom Ranch, which is at the bottom of the canyon. And to answer your question, Nargiti, yes. They should all still be there because in 1987, these buildings were designated as a National Historic Landmark District. (gasps) What a great honor! I definitely went to the Hopi House and the Watchtower. That's so cool. Yeah, it is. So even if they weren't there, which they are, this design aesthetic that she adapted, you can still see today. Let's take the Phantom Ranch, for example. This lodge for hikers and such used a lot of on-site fieldstone and rough hewn wood, all native materials from the land that would become the default for National Park Services and Civilian Conservation Corps buildings. AKA, this typology basically became the architecture genre or parkitecture, or you know, National Park Service rustic. Does this ring a bell, ladies? Like, I know that for me, whenever I visited a national park, the entrances or welcome centers tend to have a typical vibe and aesthetic. Have you noticed that? Totally. My family was super into national park hopping when I was growing up, and They definitely have a vibe of blending into the surrounding landscape or using local materials. Mm -hmm. Yeah, from the road trip we did after we graduated, I definitely remember there was a similar language between all these parks we were visiting and they were all in different states, but there was something native that tied them all together. How incredible to know Mary Elizabeth Jane was behind that. Yes, Yes, I mean, I saw this style in Miami, Florida, at some of the beaches that were actually national parks. It seems so like out of place for Miami, but putting it in the context of it being a national park, it totally makes sense now. And hello, 
I'm totally appreciative of it now that I know that my new homegirl, Mary, had an influence in that. Yeah, but Jessica, why are you cursing? Okay, so well, in my upbringing in Miami, going to the beach, for example, it just seems so out of place when I would drive through these like art deco and modern neighborhoods. And then I'd enter this like Yogi Bear exterior just to go to the beach. If <laughs> anything, I would think that the entrances would be more like tropical in appearance. But now that I'm older and I'm learning about Mary and these national parks, that they all have this like uniform aesthetic, like many other institutional buildings and spaces, you know, it makes sense. You know, if you think about like government buildings and fast food and big box stores. Hmm, I see your point, but I think Mary Elizabeth Jane's point was to be very conscientious of the culture and materials of specific places. So probably her intent was to create an architecture that was not easily transferable from one place to the next, but very sustainable in a way that it took advantage of local materials and aesthetics. But then I can also see how that was translated to fit other settings and how that may have or have not translated well. Exactly. I was going to say something similar about using local materials and aesthetics, but I can also see the advantage for a large organization like the National Park Service to stay on brand with their aesthetics, or at least to have like common threads so that you know it when you see it. Yeah. Well, anyway, back to Mary, though, and this other Southwest aesthetic that she adapted. And to be clear, I'm very intentional when I say adapted because old girl didn't create this design aesthetic or invent it. Her buildings were inspired by the existing landscape and paid homage to the Native Americans that inhabited the land previously. She insisted on having her decor items be purchased from the local Native American artisans and crafters. She hired Native American craftsmen that were aware of how to construct using the Native building material. It's so important to make this distinction, and it's something that has come up before in our podcast when we talked about tropical regionalism and modernism, how Minette de Silva and Jane Drew supported local craftsmen and materials and found it very important to incorporate that into their designs. Most definitely. I'm glad to hear that she still wanted to support the local Native American artists and to make sure that credit was given where credit was due. Yes. Listeners, be sure to check out our show notes for photos and links to see these six to seven buildings that I mentioned that are along the Grand Canyon. They each have a unique story as to why they're designed the way that they are, which attributes to their former local inhabitants. For example, the Hopi House was named after the Hopi tribe. The Hopi House is a store for Native American crafts made by Hopi artisans and is designed to resemble a Hopi Pueblo. I have a vague memory of visiting it when I was 16, but I'm excited to look at the pictures and jog my memory. Yes, Mary was great. You know, she retired to Santa Fe in 1948 and she passed away 10 years later. The influence of her work can be seen in so many things. Most likely the only woman in these spaces Mary was an advocate and was more than a decorator, which men would often consider her to be. 
but she was an architect that played by her own rules. If you think about it, architecture at that time was very European-centric. And here comes Mary with her pueblo and Native American designs, and it definitely rubbed all those men the wrong way. Yeah, I'm super impressed with her pushing for an atypical style of architecture at that time and getting into these circles where she could really educate and advocate for Native American art and design. I am not surprised that men didn't want to recognize her achievements, but I am so glad that we're talking about her today and highlighting her work. So true. And I didn't even think about the fact that she was shining a positive light and bringing importance to Native American art and culture, which probably was seen as less than. I'm really happy that she paid no mind to the haters and she had the last laugh because look at the huge influence she has been. Bam! (laughs) Yup. All right. I'm really excited about this. Now... We have reached the second half of our episode, The Caryatid. So, Nergity, can you remind the folks what a caryatid is? You got it, dude. (laughs) A caryatid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek-style building. Each episode will choose a caryatid, a woman who is working today, furthering the profession through their work, and who ties into the historical woman of our episode. All right, without further ado... This week's character goes to <laughs> Tamara Eagle Bull. Tamara. Okay, I'm surprised we didn't talk about her sooner as a character, but Tamara Eagle Bull, FAIA, is a member of the Oglala Lakota Nation and a firm owner and architect based out of Lincoln, Nebraska. Oh, say what? Lincoln, Nebraska, the show has a lot of friends out there. Shout out to all the Mishus and to Elena Manning. Ooh. Okay. Yay, listeners from Nebraska. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Okay, so I first came across Tamara back in 2018 when she won the Whitney M. Young Jr. Award, which listeners you should be familiar with. A few of our previous characters are recipients of that award. And well, hello, episode two lady, Norma Scaleric, was the first winner of the award. Yes, this is the award given by the AIA that distinguishes an architect or architectural organization that embodies social responsibility and advocates for inclusivity and equity through their work. That's so great. I love that we're talking about so many women who've won this award. Yes. All right. So get this. Tamara is the first Native American woman architect in the U.S. Say what? (laughs) (laughs) How old is she? When was she licensed? I mean, this is like recent history. That's crazy. Yeah. I. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> I would have gone longer if I had catch more breath. <laughs> yeah, no, Judy, breathe. Next time. It's okay. <laughs> um, so I couldn't quickly find what year she became licensed, but on her website, it does say that she has over 30 years of experience. So my guess is that she probably got licensed probably like in the late 80s, early 90s, something like that. OMG, this means we may have been alive by the time that she was licensed. That's insane to think that 
I mean, that's not too long ago. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, it's sad that it's taken this long for it to happen, but I'm pumped for her. Yeah. Yeah. So researching Mary, Tamara was the first person I thought of. Tamara is considered to be a recognized leader in the realm of contemporary Native American architecture. And she's an advocate for culturally relevant and responsible design. I seriously want to learn more about her. What a trailblazer and with a unique experience and voice that was missing from American architecture for centuries. I will be looking her up for some more after this. Jessica, thank you for introducing her to us. Yes, thank you. I'm super excited to learn more about her and see how she weaves in her Native American heritage and experience into her architecture. Yes, yes. All very important. All right. So now we're at a new segment on our show that we are calling the Agora. So in Greek society, the Agora was the central meeting place of the city where news was shared. So listeners, we want to invite you to share any exciting news that's happening in your lives so that we can share in the excitement and the wins together. All right. So let's visit the Agora. Our news comes from our graphic designer slash mastermind behind our She Builds podcast logo, Joel. Joel V designed an album cover that was featured on Rolling Stone magazine in India. <gasps> Woo! Yeah! Congrats, Congrats. Joel! Yay, Joel! Yes! Yeah, yeah! That's really great. Really great, Joel. And... We want to continue to share the great news from our listeners. So listeners, it doesn't matter if you're male, female, anything in between. If you have news to share, big or small, please send them to our email at shebillspodcast at gmail.com or message us on Instagram, Facebook, wherever you're at. Let's just celebrate your accomplishments. Yes. All right. Before we sign off, we want to give our thanks to CMYK for the music, John W., our tech producer. And most of all, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed learning about Mary Elizabeth and Tamara along with our banter and that you're inspired to find out more about them and other amazing ladies. Again, thank you. She Builds Podcast is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L Media.com. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you've enjoyed it, please help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your park rangers. Give us five stars on iTunes. Write us a review. This will all help us reach a wider audience and for more people to continue learning about these amazing ladies with us. We're excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuildspodcast at gmail.com. Leave a comment on our website, shebuildspodcast.com, or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at shebuildspodcast and on Twitter at shebuildspod. So see you next time. Bye. Bye. Curious, Nerdity, why do you keep saying Mary Elizabeth Jane? Isn't that her name? Yeah, but I kind of assumed that Jane was like a middle name. I don't know. I've been calling her Mary Elizabeth. Then I call her Mary. Uh, so... I like to call her her full name. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Just call her whatever you want. So, yeah, Mary, call her Mary Elizabeth. It's okay.
our, our new homegirl season episode 33. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.